Good morning and welcome. My name is Liz. Um, I do communications here at Outward Church, so I hope you read my weekly emails or see my app notifications. Um, and I also serve at the Connect Desk, and then my husband and I um, host a group at our home. I'm going to be reading Galatians 3, 26 through 4, 7. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you all are one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean, <clears throat> I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, than an heir through God. Amen to that. Amen to that. Let me pray. Father God, we love you so much. God, I'm so grateful that we get to call you Father, that you establish that kind of relationship with us. God, it's unbelievable, but we just rejoice in it. God, I pray that as we dive into your word now, this morning, God, with the truth of your word, just just make an impression on our heart. God, would you soften our hard hearts? Would you open our minds to receive your truth as it is? We pray this in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Amen. Please have a seat. When I was growing up, uh, my, my parents had a, uh, some property in Eastern Oregon, in Pilot Rock, which probably most of you have not heard of. It's 20 minutes south of Pendleton. Pendleton is four hours away from here, so there you go. Uh, not, not a ton of people, there's a rodeo there, some people know that. Uh, that's, that's where I spent a lot of my summers. We would drive, so we, we actually lived there when I was born, we moved to the valley when I was two, but every summer I would drive with my dad back to Pilot Rock, we would do a ton of physical labor in like 300 degree weather with not a drop of water in sight, you're like, I remember mowing a lot uh, in the desert, like just mowing dust. What is happening right now? But this was something that I did, and I actually really cherished uh, not so much the manual physical labor, uh, as my dad will recall how often I complained, but I enjoyed the time with my dad. I enjoyed that we got to drive. Now, this was uh, uh, maybe before air conditioning was super common in vehicles, at least it wasn't common in our vehicles, so I remember... My dad's work van, it was, it was like an oven. It was just a rolling oven. We would pile in this thing, drive five hours into the desert. It was awesome. Uh, it, was, it was really great. But I mean, these are like, I've got so many great memories with my dad. I, one in particular, uh, we had what we called the pit stop. It's, it's in Biggs, which is roughly halfway between here and Pendleton. Um, also a place most people have never heard of or seen. Um, even if you've driven by it, you may not have seen it. Uh, but we would stop in Biggs. That was the halfway point. That was always like, ah, oh, we're, we're halfway there. This journey is, this long drive is, is, 
is halfway done. And we would get out at the same little convenience store and get a road snack, you know, some, you know, some good and plenties or some, uh, you know, hot tamales or something like that to just kind of snack on and try to, uh, you know, burn down the time. And we'd get something cold to drink. Oh, oh, so refreshing after this long, hot drive. You'd get, you know, I, I'd go to the, the soda fountain Get, get, get the cup. And I remember one time in particular, I was, I was a little guy. I don't know if I was eight, nine, ten years old, whatever. And I, and I get my cup. My dad said, I, I could get any size soda. So, of course, I'm going for like the super mega big gulp, right? Uh, as, a, as a little guy, I remember having this cup like this and you're filling it with ice. And the key when your car has no air conditioning and you're driving to the desert is lots of ice. You want about 90% ice in there, a little bit of soda. And then as that melts, it, it's going to stay cold, right, for, for longer. So I remember getting a bunch of ice in the cup and then filling it up with, you know, Sprite or Crush or whatever, whatever I was drinking, right? Fill it up with soda. And, you know, of course, my, my nose came about here on the, on the thing, right? So I'm, I'm filling this soda up and I get right up to the top because we've got like two and a half hours left of this drive. So I want every bit of this soda I can. And then I, I move the soda over here and then I got to get the lid. And this lady that worked there came along. And she was concerned for me that I was going to spill this soda. So she takes my soda and pours out about a quarter of it and sets it back down. Says, there you go, little guy. <laughs> oh, I've been looking forward to this soda for two and a half hours. And you just poured a quarter of it down the drain? Are you crazy? And, and just destroyed. I put my lid on and I stick my straw in. That was back when straws were just like in a bucket for everyone to just grab and get their fingers over. And I'm still here, whatever, right? So anyway, I put my dirty straw in the cup. I go walking over the counter. My dad was getting candy or something, right? He comes over. He could tell. My dad could tell that I was not happy. I was upset. And I don't remember exactly what the look on my face was. My dad probably does. He could probably tell you still today. He looks at me and goes, Brian, what's wrong? Nothing, Dad. It's nothing. He goes, no, Brian, what, what's the matter? You know, we were, we're all chipper and cheery coming in here. I go, Dad, it's, it's no big deal. Just that lady over there, that lady, she, she poured out part of my soda. My dad's like, what? And she, she was afraid I was going to spill, so she poured out part of my soda. And I will never remember this, or I will never forget this my entire life, right? Uh, my dad walks over to this lady, total stranger, and he says, did you pour out part of my son's soda? And she's like, well, yeah, sir, I just, you know, he's a little guy, I thought he was maybe going to spill. He says, that's not your son, that's my son. You don't pour out his soda. Listen, lady, I can be a big old bear. And he grabbed my soda, he topped it off, put the lid on it, and we went and checked out. I, I remember specifically the phrasing because it's so bizarre. And it's like, it's not in my dad's character to call himself a bear. Uh, I've never heard it since. I don't imagine I'll ever hear it again. But my dad says, I can be a big old bear. All right? Let me just tell you, as a little guy, the, 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 the love and the pride and the care that I felt in that moment, that my dad is a big old bear, and if somebody tries to hurt me, if somebody gets in my way, my dad is gonna come to my rescue. That was like, fathers, if you get a chance to do this for your kids, call yourself a bear, do it. <laughs> Listen, I, I, that was like a, a formative moment in my childhood because I knew my dad had my back. It was so cool. Uh, and I go, you know, what's up, lady? You know, go walking out, my big old soda. I probably spilled it on the way. <laughs> like, let's be honest, right? But uh, it was my soda to spill. Uh, that was just like, it was such a cool moment as a kid. 
And, and as we look at this passage, it talks about us being adopted. It talks about God as Father. Just that story came to mind. Uh, I, I just thought it was so cool, and uh, I didn't have a better story to start with. So we'll start there. All right. Um, listen, this passage here uh, that was just read for us, picking up in verse 26, it's a continuation. It's actually mid-sentence, right? Some of you may have noticed that. Mid-sentence, we stopped last week. We picked that up this week. This is a continuation of thought for Paul as he's writing to the Galatians. And remember that the Galatians were, were Paul's spiritual children. He had planted a church there. He had led them to Christ, and then he went to plant other churches. And while he was away, other teachers came in and started adding to the gospel, which you'll remember I've said many times now, it's, as Paul has said many times, is no other gospel at all. Once you start adding a bunch of rules and regulations and things to the gospel, it ceases to be Good news, it ceases to be the gospel. And so Paul is writing this letter, and this thought is continuing to combat the misteaching that we have to earn our way to heaven, that we have to uh, make ourselves acceptable to God, that after being saved, the only way to remain saved is to do all the things. Keep up the list. What list? The the man-made list. Right? Because there, there is no list. God has no list for that. He says, believe and be saved, and that's the end of it. But they were adding things to this list. And, and we still do this today. That's why this letter is so relevant. It's because the exact same thing that happened in the Galatians day is what happens in our day. We add to it. We add to the gospel. We put on ourselves a list of things to do. Well, I've got to read my Bible every day, and I've got to pray uh, in, in this way, and I've, I've got to uh, you know, read a devotional. I, I need to be in a community group. If, if I'm not doing these things, I'm not saved, right? I've got to go on mission trips. I've got to tell my neighbor about Jesus. I've got to do these things or I'm not going to be saved. God's going to reject me. And it wasn't true then and it's not true now. Salvation is by faith alone, faith in Jesus Christ alone. That's how salvation comes. So the first kind of thing I want to draw out here is, um, is what, what Paul is explaining here. For in Christ Jesus, this is verse 26, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So we have this idea of being sons of God, and I think this is worth mentioning because this is misunderstood so often. I cannot tell you how many times in my life from well-meaning people I've heard the thing, I've heard the phrase, uh, we're all just children of God. Maybe you've said it. I think I've said it. We're all just children of God. But this, that's not exactly right. When we say that, what we're implying is that by default, we are God's children, right? That because God made us, we're God's children, and we're good. And then, you know, some of us sin, and some of us break that, and then, and then we need Jesus. But, but by saying, well, we're all God's children, we're implying that, that by default we're good with God until we mess it up. And I just want to point out that that's not true. That's not true. The, the Bible will not tell us that by default we are children of God. The Bible will tell us actually the opposite. Okay, and in John 8, 44, this is one of my favorite like smackdowns in the Bible. Um, John uh, chapter 8, verse 44, Jesus is speaking to the Pharisees. These are very religious people. 
who keep all of the rules, but didn't like the, the way Jesus was coming and hanging out with, with the sinners, the rejects, the unholy, the unrighteous, but Jesus is bringing to them this message of, uh, of salvation, right? And they're upset with him, and in fact, they throw an insult at Jesus. Um, we were not born of sexual immorality. This is back in 41. We were not born of sexual immorality. We have one father, even God. What, what are they getting at? That's a weird thing to say, right? We're not born of sexual immorality. Oh, Jesus' mom, Mary, was a virgin, right? She was not married when Jesus was conceived. The accusation here is that she was, she was not all righteous, right? He's, he's saying maybe, uh, you know, your mom, you know, at least she's not our mom. Right, So they're, they're insulting Jesus, and, and he responds in verse 44, you are of your father the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Jesus is saying, you're not children of God because you're not doing God's will. Now, I, I think Jesus is making a strong point here. I don't think he's literally saying that we are offspring of the devil, but I, I think that the point still rings true that apart from Christ, without being adopted into God's family, we are not children of God. We are alienated from God. We are apart from God. We have all gone astray. Uh, no one is righteous, not even one, right? The wages of our sin is death. We are apart from God. We are not by default God's children. And if anything, we're children of the devil because we do what our father does, right? We, we lie. Uh, and, and we cheat and we steal, we, we murder, as we looked at last week's message, what murder really means, right? Hatred, insults, things like that. These are all thrown in the category of murder when Jesus breaks it down. And so uh, we can see by our lives maybe who we more closely resemble. And, it, and it's not God by default. So he's, Paul is making this point that in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God. So I just want to make sure that we understand this, that we become sons of God only in Jesus. We become sons of God at the moment we place our faith in Jesus. Now we are adopted in, we have a new father, a new family, a new identity, which changes everything. That doesn't come by default. We aren't entitled to that. But God gives us that new family, that new identity as a gift at the moment we place our faith in Christ. In Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. Important for us to know that. He then goes on to say this statement starting in verse 28. There is neither Jew nor Greek there's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I think it's worth taking the time to look at this and what it's saying, specifically because of today's world. I think it's worth looking at and examining what Paul is saying here because we live in a world, in a culture, which is torn apart where you pick your side and stand your ground, where you fight, you argue, you separate yourself from everyone else. And these battle lines are drawn all over the place. Neither Jew nor Greek, neither black 
nor white, neither immigrant nor citizen. We draw these lines and we pick our sides and we say it's us against them. It's them against us. Everyone else is the enemy. He's saying that does not make sense in God's economy. That is not how God's kingdom is made. There's neither uh, free nor slave, right? Ne neither slave nor free. Are you a boss? Are you an employee? Is it, is it us against the company? Is it corporate against the workers? Is it the privileged versus the unprivileged? Is it those with status against those with no status? Paul says, what? And this is not just symbolic, uh, the way he uses this word. They were like actual slaves. They had multiple forms of slavery. We're not primarily talking about slavery as America uh, experienced it. There, it was a lot of indentured servitude that you there was no bankruptcy in that culture, right? So if you run up a, de a debt you cannot pay, you become the indentured servant of your master, the one you borrowed money from that you cannot repay. That was one form of slavery. There was another where you might sell yourself or your children into slavery because you cannot afford to pay, but, but this was a way of having housing and food and work provided, and so there's voluntary uh, slavery. And, and then there is like slave trading. Uh, there is like... This, this terrible, wicked thing where people are captured and, and used as slaves, that exists also. Which, by the way, none of that is, is biblical. The, the Bible doesn't support any of that. Paul is speaking to a culture, he's speaking to a time, and he's speaking to a people who this is their way of life. You have people who are slaves, then you have people who are free. You have people who, who work for, and you have people who are worked for. He's saying none of that matters. None of that matters. That, that doesn't change your position. When you are in Christ, you're one with Christ. You're one with one another. There's neither male nor free, or I'm sorry, male nor female. I'm mixing my points here. There's, there's neither male nor female, right? Uh, feminism and sexism and, and, and men are higher, women are higher, do away with this, that, or the other. No, none of that. And remember, this is a time in history in which women had virtually no rights. Women in that culture didn't own property for the most part, uh, had no say in government, no voting rights, anything like that, right? That's the culture in which Paul's speaking to. How radical is it that he says male, female doesn't matter in a culture where that mattered supremely? He's saying, that doesn't matter. Are you guys crazy? If you are in Christ, you are in Christ. Your gender doesn't make you less than, and it doesn't make you more than. What this isn't saying is that there's no value in differences. We don't become like monochrome robots as Christians. God has created each of us uniquely different. God has created us. In fact, there's lots of other passages I could take you to that say that we each bring value as we are, that God didn't, like purposefully didn't create us the same. He wants us to be different because we bring different value to the body of Christ. Right, a body is not made up of all left arms. That's weird. The body has many parts and they work together. And the body of Christ is like that. So our differences are to be celebrated 
while not setting anyone higher than or lower than anyone else. We are all one in Christ. I'll ask this question, is the Bible old-fashioned and outdated as many people propose? No, right? No, look at how progressive this idea is. From 2,000 years ago, look at how progressive this idea is. In fact, it is, this is not on the spectrum of progressive to conservative. This is entirely different. This is entirely different. It is more progressive than anyone in our culture would dare hope or propose or dream or conceive, and it's still more conservative than anyone in our culture would dare hope and dream and conceive. Right? The, the Bible is entirely different. God's word is entirely different. It gives worth and value to everyone that we are all created in God's image that gives us value and worth and purpose. And it also means that no one is higher than anyone else. I asked uh, Pastor Matt Baldwin before the service, we were talking through this a little bit, and, and I asked this question, like, who would you put below yourself? Who would you say is not as good as, as you? Who is, who's uh, not as high as you? Or who is higher than you? Who is above you? Where, are you putting yourself somewhere on this, in this hierarchy of power? There's no place for that in God's kingdom. Because as adopted children of God, we have the Father God who is the ultimate authority, and then we have all of us co-heirs with Christ. There's Father God, the authority, which means none of us are the authority. I can't put myself above anyone else because I'm not the authority God is. And if that person is in Christ, we are exactly the same, exactly the same positionally. I'm not higher, you're not higher, we are in the same position. There's only one role in that sense. There's only one level. This is not this hierarchy. There's not high, you know, more Christian or less Christian. There's those who are in Christ and those who aren't. And I think that's an important message for us to know and hear, and I would encourage all of us to check our hearts and say, who am I putting below my status or who am I putting above my status because it's unbiblical. It is contrary to the gospel. It is contrary to God's kingdom to put anyone above or below where I am at. There are those who are in Christ and there are those who need Christ. One group we love and care for because we are of the same family. And the other group we love and care for because they need Jesus so they can be a part of the same family. That's so radical. That's so much more radical than anything in our culture that's going on right now. And it's 2,000 years old. Isn't that incredible? Isn't that incredible what, what God is doing here and establishing? And, and clearly some of that is, is aspirational in Paul's day and still aspirational today. But as we live out God's kingdom on earth right now, we need to keep that at the forefront of our minds and evaluate our actions and our thoughts in accordance with that. Let's check our heart. Uh, thirdly, I'd, I'd like to move right into the beginning of chapter 4. Um, I don't want to spend a ton of time on this, but, but I do want to point a couple things out. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. 
uh, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. What's happening here in Paul's day and culture is as a child, you had zero rights. I found this horrific, by the way, uh, as I was studying this week. As a child, you have zero rights. Your father could beat you. Your father could disown you from the family. The father could kill his own child. There was no legal recourse for that. That's shocking. But that's the culture in which he's speaking into, right? As a, as a child, you, you're in, in some ways no different than a, a slave. You, you, you're under these guardians and managers until the date set by his father. You're, in, in our culture, we kind of set these dates that at 16, you can drive at 18, you can vote, join the military, 21, you can drink and whatever else. I can't keep up all the things you can do now at 21, but uh, at, at one of those dates, you are an adult, right? And, and different cultures, different countries have different dates set on, on when you are declared an adult. Uh, in that day, it, it was not based on any date or age, but rather the father would set a date and say, on this day now you are an adult. That might be younger for some, older for others. In some ways, that actually makes some sense, right? Uh, not everybody at 13 is of the same maturity level. Not everyone at 21 is at the same maturity level. And some of us much further than that. Uh, so, uh, but, but the father could declare this is the date in which you become an adult. And at that point, then you have the full rights as an adult. You can, you can write checks on the family account, in a sense. You can make decisions financially for the family and the estate. You become a full, uh, a full heir at that point. And, and Paul is just, and if you listened to last week's sermon, if you were here last week, if not, you can look it up online. Uh, but we went in depth into this idea, right, of, of going back to the elementary principles of, of legalism and, and law and, and a list of things to do. That's like putting yourself back under those guardians, back under your nanny. Right? That's a moving backwards rather than experiencing the freedom that is in Christ, the freedom that Christ bought for us. So I don't need to go too much into that. I don't think hopefully you heard that in, in detail last week. What I would ask is do you view God as master or do you view God as father? There's a big difference there. Is God master or is God Father? I just want you to dwell on that a little bit. And, and I, I would like to, just as an aside, I'd like to address fathers and men who will be fathers someday. You have the ability to shape your children's view of God the Father. More than you have the ability, you, let me say this stronger, you are shaping your child's view of God the Father. If you are a crummy father, you are giving your kids a crummy view of God. Not that that can't be overcome, and, and I pray that it will be, but I just wanna like, encourage you to take your responsibility as father seriously. I wanna encourage me to take my responsibility as father seriously. I have four daughters and I am shaping currently their view of God as father. 
if I am loving and caring and full of grace and mercy for my daughters, then when they hear as they grow that God is their father, they're going to think of love and mercy and grace. And if I am harsh and demanding and a taskmaster and performance-driven as I demand, make demands of my children, then when my children hear God as father, they're going to think a taskmaster who demands performance, who must, uh, they must perform to keep up. Right? So I just want to make sure that we understand as fathers the weightiness of that. And I want to say there's grace because God, your father, is full of mercy and love and patience and grace. And so when you completely botch it, as I've done regularly, there's grace. Right? And I can go to my father, my heavenly father, and say, God, forgive me. Have grace on me because I'm screwing it up. Uh, and, and, and God meets me there, and he has grace and mercy with me, right? So there's forgiveness there. Uh, I want to make sure that I'm, I'm making that known. But it's, it's a heavy call. It's a heavy call. And finally, the part that I am most excited for, and I have very little time for, uh, but I, I want to get into this right here. Um, verse 3, in the same way, uh, uh, in the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, verse 4, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So that we might receive adoption as sons. We're going to break that down. Verse uh, Six And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Let me break this idea of adoption down just a little bit for us. Number one, he says adoption as sons. Wait a second, I thought Paul was just being inclusive of women, right? No difference, male, female, right? Greek, Jew, slave-free. Brian, you just said that he... He is including everyone and giving worth and value. So, so why now is he saying adoption is sons? Is that not excluding every female who's going to read this? No, actually, let me show you how beautiful this is. A daughter in that culture, in, in the Roman world, did not have rights of inheritance. They would be passed over for an inheritance for the son. Paul is saying daughter you are receiving adoption as sons. This is giving women a higher value, a higher placement. This is putting women on the same level as men, which was not done in that day, and still I think is not done in many ways. But this is an elevation of women. This is saying, no, everyone who is in Christ, continuing that same thought, is one in Christ. You receive adoption as sons, not a diminished portion, not a portion with lesser rights. You receive the full inheritance. This is awesome. We get the full inheritance. All of us are adopted as sons. And, and another question I, I would ask, and, and listen, if you get this, if you get what it means to be adopted by God, this will change your life. This, this reality has absolutely changed my life. And if you get it, if it settles into your heart and into your mind, this is going to change your life. Why does he say adoption? 
And why doesn't he just say that we're natural born sons now? Why is he using this language of adoption? Again, I have to point to the culture. This would be understood by Paul's readers in that day. I already spoke to the rights of a child, a natural born child, which were nothing, right? If you did something horrible to your family, you could be disowned, legally disowned. You are no longer a part of the family. You no longer receive any share in the inheritance. You have been disowned. Now, adoption was common in this time. Specifically, adoption would be used, uh, you know, to adopt children, but, but also adoption would be used uh, if you had no male heir. But you don't want all your property to go to someone else. You want your, your family line, your, your, your inheritance to go somewhere. You want to guide that. And so you could adopt a son to be your heir. This would even happen of adults. You might adopt an adult son, someone that you uh, liked or cared for or, or trusted or whatever, and he officially becomes heir to the inheritance. And you know what's crazy about this? There was no legal process for disowning an adopted son. You get that? You could legally disown in that day your natural born son. But when you adopt a son in, he is secure forever. He cannot be legally disowned. He is an heir of that inheritance no matter what. What implications does that have to Paul's readers? What implications does that have to us who are adopted in? We are secure. There, there, there is no fear that we might be disowned. We are secure. There's no legal process for removing us from the family of God once you are adopted in. Do you hear that? Isn't that incredible? I, I need that assurance. The greatest anxiety I have ever felt in my entire life. Yeah, I'm just gonna be real with you guys. Like over the last couple of years, specifically probably three or four years ago, I went through a period of crushing doubt. I doubted my faith, I doubted everything. Because I just, I was overwhelmed with my sin. How can I again sin when I've been a Christian so long? How can I again revile God when he has loved me so much? How can I again return to a God which is no God, a gospel which is no gospel? How can I again turn my back on Jesus? There's no way, right? He's, he's done with me, right? He must be. I, I went through a period, I couldn't sleep. I'm not, not like typically prone to anxiety. I couldn't sleep. There were, there were nights literally I didn't sleep at all or I couldn't get to sleep until the wee hours of the morning because this fear that I have removed myself from God's family was overwhelming. This reality brought me so much peace. What are you talking about, Brian? The Spirit whispers to me. What are you talking about? You're no longer a part of the family. I knew you were going to mess up. That's why I adopted you. What, do you. what do you mean? There's no legal process to remove you from this family. You're in. Rest in that. 
Some of you need to know that reality. When you are adopted, you're secure. You're secure. You're secure in that. Paul says that we, that the Spirit comes in and cries out on our behalf, Abba, Father. Not a word we're, we're pretty known to like. There's like that Swedish rock band, Abba, right? Uh, Dancing Queen, my second daughter, loves that song. She's convinced it's about her. She is the Dancing Queen. Uh, loves it. Um, that's not what we're talking about here. Um, Abba, Father, this is, this is a term, and probably many of you have heard this before. This is a term of endearment. It's like saying daddy in our language, right? This is my dad. Spirit enters my heart, and I get to cry out, dad, daddy, father, papa. What's your word for dad? Your dearest, ten, like most tender word for your father. That's what we're talking about here. Papa. Father, Dad, hear me. I'm struggling. I need you. I think, think of little kids calling out for their dad. We, uh, we went camping a couple weeks ago. My daughter was playing at the, at the playground, at the, at the campgrounds. Uh, this is Lily, my third daughter. She comes running over. Dad, Dad, Dad. I knew at an instant, from a distance, who was calling. Not only that it was my kid, but which kid it was. I didn't even need to see her. She was off in a distance. I knew. And I also knew from the tone in her voice something was wrong. And I go running to her. Yes, Lily. Dad, some boy just punched me in the playground. Uh, you want to see a big old bear? Okay. Huh? Okay. Let's do this. We go walking over to the playground. Dad is coming to defense. Daddy is here. A term of endearment, love, and care. I, I have to finish this story. On the way to the playground, I was like, why did this boy punch you? And I'm envisioning like some teenage boy. It's about to go down. I'm going to knock this kid senseless. Uh, and, and she goes, well, he put his shoes on the top of the slide, and they were in my way, so I threw his shoes. Okay, and she goes, it's that boy, and it's smaller than her. It's like, we're going to go back to camp. <laughs> I'm not about to start a fight with a three-year-old who's defending himself from my bully of a daughter. Oh, my gosh. Whew. Anyway, uh, <laughs> proud father moment there. Um, no, like, that, that's how we cry out to God. That's how we uh, relate with God. Abba, Father, Daddy, right? This is, this is how... Uh, our status is now as we are adopted. We are heirs according to the promise. Remember from last week we talked about the promise versus the law, right? The promise that was made to Abraham, the promise that's fulfilled in Jesus, the promise that is for eternal life, eternal salvation, promise to be with God forever in heaven for all eternity, and it's a promise not of a place Heaven's great, I'm sure. I'm looking forward to it. It's a promise of a person. It's a promise to be called a son or a daughter, to be a child of a loving father. It's relational. That's the promise. We are heirs of that promise when we are in Christ. When we put our faith in Jesus, we are heirs.
of that promise. Um, I, I have referred to, to adoption before as a, as a living metaphor. Um, a, uh, I, I think a, a, a living metaphor is something that like you see in everyday life that is a metaphor, right? Metaphors are typically of words, and then we have these living metaphors. Specifically, we have some in the faith. Marriage is one, right? We're told that our relationship between church and Jesus is like wife and husband, right? That the way Jesus relates to his church is like a husband relates to his wife. And so in our marriages, we get to model for the world something of God's relationship with us. We, we get to live out that metaphor. Uh, baptism is another one. It's, we've got a baptism coming up on Family Sunday that we go down into the water associating with Jesus' death and burial, and then we come out of the water, renewed, right? Like Jesus, resurrected, coming out of the grave. We get to do this and show the world that we are identifying with Jesus in his death, burial, and resurrection. It's a living metaphor. We're gonna take communion in a minute. This is another one, right? Remembering Jesus' body broken, his blood spilled. It's not literally his body, it's crackers. We were at the grocery store, going down the cracker aisle, my daughter points at the little oyster cracker. She's like, hey, look, that's a church cracker. Uh, <laughs> yeah, and it's, they're great in soup too. Like, uh, you know, uh, like it's not literally his body, but, but it, is, it is a living metaphor that we get to participate in, uh, his body and his blood, reminding us of the sacrifice he made, yeah? Um, adoption is another one, and I wish I had more time to talk about this, but, but as we adopt children into our families, we get to display the gospel to the world. And you go, well, adoption is hard, yes. What, what if they are, uh, I heard a couple of chuckles. What, what, if, what if the child coming into our family has, has problems? What if they rebel? What if they push back? What if they run away? Then aren't we displaying the gospel? And the way that we rebel and push back and disobey our God, and yet he loves us still and brings us into his family. The kind of unconditional love that is shown in physical adoption I think is no better picture in the world. There's no better picture of the gospel that adopts us in no matter what. Of God adopting us in, sitting us at the table. You are now a co-heir with Christ. It's beautiful. Some good friends of ours, um, Amy uh, and Justin Wallace, I, I got permission, I think, through my wife to tell the story. Uh, she, she was talking to Amy on the phone. They finalized their adoption this week, right? Yes, whoo, that is exciting. They, they finalized their adoption and they go into the courtroom and the judge loves doing, the judge loves doing adoption finalization uh, in, in her courtroom and, and had this, this uh, train table set up apparently with like their names on it. It's this, this really cool thing and, and, and just as excited and decorations up. It was a celebration. This is not just like a formal legal process, but this is a celebration that you are now a part of our family, forever a part of our family. You share in the inheritance. You have a father and a mother now who love you and will protect you, um, who, will, who will never stop loving you. Right? God says, uh, I will be your God and you will be my people. That's the relationship he wants with us. And, and there were tears there were a lot of tears at that ceremony. In fact, my wife telling the story, like I could hardly get it out of her. She was crying so much. 
And, and there's a blend there, right? There, there's like tears of hardship. It's a hard process. Just like our adoption in God's family is a hard process. So hard that Jesus had to be killed for it. It's a hard process. There's tears of hardship, but there's tears of joy which overwhelm the tears of hardship. There's tears of joy there that, that through this long and bumpy road, now these children are in our family, that they're here with us, they're secure with us. They never have to wonder again. They'll never be anywhere else, they're here. And it's the tears of joy and the celebration as we become Christians, as we place our faith in Jesus and the work that he did on the cross, we're secure. We're here, and the tears of joy overwhelm the tears of hardship. Do you know God as Father? And what does that mean to you? Do you know Him as Father? All of this stuff where we try to perform for God, it's insanity, it's silliness. Stop it, just stop it. Some of you need to hear that, some of you need to know that. Stop performing for God. It doesn't change your position. He's adopted you. You're there. You're secure. We're, we're going we're gonna to sing a song. It's probably familiar. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. I want to invite the, the ushers forward kind of as I'm reading through this uh, to get ready for communion here. How great the pain of searing loss. The father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one. That's Jesus. Bring many sons to glory. As we sing that, let it resonate with your heart. Wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Behold the man upon a cross, my sin upon his shoulders. Ashamed, I hear my mocking voice call out among the scoffers. It was my sin that held him there until it was accomplished. His dying breath has brought me life. I know that it is finished. And it concludes with this. I will not boast in anything. No gifts, no power, no wisdom. Right, that's straight out of Galatians. There's nothing to boast in. I have no work to boast in. But I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. Why should I gain from his reward? This line gets me every time. Why should I gain from his reward? I cannot give an answer. But this I know with all my heart. His wounds have paid my ransom. Let's do communion now. If you'll just stand up. We've got three ushers in the front. I think we've got two in the back. So whoever's nearest, uh, get the bread and the, the juice. I think this one's mine here. We're going to do this together. So just get the elements and head back to your seat. We'll take this together. Another living metaphor, another way that we can remind ourselves of his broken body, his spilled blood, the price that Jesus paid for our adoption. And he does it willingly. He does it for his glory and for our supreme joy. As you're making your way back to your seat, we just want to take the bread. 
which represents Jesus' body, which was broken for us. It was broken for me. My sin, it was that held him there until it was accomplished. We remember Jesus' body that was broken for our sake now. And his blood that was spilled, Jesus says it's, it's, his blood is of the new covenant. Remember the promise and let's drink the juice. Let's worship together.